Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. Stay tuned for today's episode. Thrilled to have David Rubenstein as a guest today. David is the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private investment firms. Established in 1987, Carlyle now manages $369 billion from 27 offices around the world. Mr. Rubenstein is chairman of the boards of the John F. Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Economic Club of Washington. Mr. Rubenstein is a leader in the area of patriotic philanthropy, having made transformative gifts for the restoration or repair of the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, and Jefferson Memorial. Mr. Rubenstein has provided the U.S. government long-term loans of his rare copies of the Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Emancipation Proclamation. Mr. Rubenstein is an original signer of the Giving Pledge, the host of the David Rubenstein Show, and Bloomberg Wealth with David Rubenstein, and the author of The American Story, How to Lead, and The American Experiment. First question, how often do you sleep? Uh, not enough, but uh, you're supposed to get eight hours of sleep a night. I get about uh, five and a half or six, but I think this is probably going to shorten my lifespan. That's what they tell me, though. I'm now 73 years old and pretty good health, so we'll see how long I can go. Got it. Well, there's a lot that I want to unpack in this. And, you know, you've been kind of a role model to me, but for two different reasons. When I was younger um, and worked at Drexel, you were a role model because of what you did at Carlisle. And as I get a little bit older, you become more of a role model because of what you've done philanthropically. So I want to touch on both of those areas. Um, first question I have for you is what kind of background did you grow up in? I mean, were you, was your, were you wealthy, middle class? And what did your parents do for a living? My parents were blue collar uh, workers. My parents uh, were not college or high school educated. My father dropped out of high school to go into World War II. He came back. He met my mother. They got married at the unseemly young ages of 20 and 17. Um, I was their only child. My father worked in the post office his entire career. So he made a blue collar wage. And, uh, you know, I lived in a very modest house in Baltimore. And that uh, was a very uh, segregated area in Baltimore because uh, the Jewish community really lived all in one area. So it was hard to buy a house if you were Jewish in certain non-Jewish areas. So we all lived in kind of a shtetl area. I would say um, it was a, you know, not, I'm not saying I was uh, poverty stricken or anything. It was just a blue collar environment. And, uh, you know, but it had the advantage that you knew if you're going to get anywhere in life, you had to do it on your own. When you were younger, was being wealthy important to you? Uh, I had no interest in money. Uh, my parents never had any money. They were always living paycheck to paycheck. There was no role model at the time of people starting private equity firms or hedge funds or tech startups or things like that. So uh, my goal was to be a lawyer, go into government. And basically, if I could ultimately go work at the White House, which I thought was a great thing to do as a government servant, uh, and I had no interest in money. I mean, zero, nothing. That's very interesting. Um, in 1987, you started Carlisle Group, and it, it was actually one of the first private equity firms. Question is, what did you see in this industry that maybe other people didn't see? Because this was just the beginning. 
Well, I don't want to claim that I saw things that others didn't see. What I did is um, I started a private equity firm in Washington. The phrase private equity actually hadn't been invented yet. We were then called uh, leverage buyout firms or management buyout firms or or things like that. Um, I had worked in the White House for President Carter after we lost the election to Ronald Reagan in 1980. I went back and practiced law, the only skill I had. I'd practiced in New York a few years before uh, I went to work in the White House. And I um, realized I wasn't a good lawyer. Um, my clients agreed with that. Uh, nobody thought I was going to be Clarence Darrow or Edward Bennett Williams. And so I decided that if you're not really good at something, you should try something else. Um, and so I decided to start the first investment firm of its type in Washington. At the time, I didn't really know what I was doing. Later, I came up with the idea of building a multidiscipline firm, which was novel at the time, a buyout firm, a venture firm, a growth capital firm, a debt firm, have all those different things in one firm with different funds and different people managing, and then to globalize it. So we would have funds in Europe, Asia, Japan, Latin America, and so forth. So we were one of the first that came up with the idea of doing many things more than buyouts and doing them outside the United States as well. Did you have any clue on how big this industry or Carlisle, in fact, would become? It's tempting to say, yes, I knew all along, but the truth is I had no clue at all. When I started Carlisle and I negotiated the original lease, I said, I only want 6,000 square feet. I'm never going to get bigger than that. And they basically said, well, you have some spare, you have an option for additional space. I said, I don't want the option. Take it out of the lease. I'm never going to grow more than 6,000 square feet. So I had no clue. I can't, I wish I could say I did, but I did not. So what were the drivers that caused private equity to explode in the last two decades, just from a macro standpoint? Well, it's clearly the charm and good looks of the founders. Um, I think without the, the, the handsome people that have started private equity firms, they wouldn't have grown. Now, actually, uh, the rates of return turned out to be better than anything else one could legally do with their money on a consistent basis. So if over 100 years or so, the S&P 500 would go up on average about 6% a year, um, private equity on average was probably going up in the double digit range. So it depends on the type of private equity, but somewhere, let's say 15 to 20% per annum. And so if you're getting 15 to 20% per annum on average, compared to the stock market of 6% or so on average, you can attract a lot of money. How much bigger is private, private equity going to become in the next decade, in your opinion? Well, remember, uh, two-thirds of all private equity dollars are now invested in Western Europe, United States, uh, Japan, Australia, and Canada, so-called developed countries. So the emerging markets uh, are still relatively unscratched. There are There is a private equity, of course, in India and China and Brazil, but compared to the United States, it's relatively modest in size. So as the emerging markets get wealthier, as they will inevitably over the next several decades, they will see enormous growth in private equity. And I suspect you'll see the industry continue to grow quite nicely. Now, you've done extraordinarily well in private equity. And then a little while ago, you just started to start a family office. Why did you start a family office? Well, as I got older, uh, I realized that many of my peers had started family offices, and I began to look into it. And I realized that there are certain things that you can't really do in your own private equity firm and certain things you can do in a family office. I also made, had to be clear that I couldn't really be involved directly in the family office because I have affiliate relationships with Carlisle. So as long as I'm a, on the investment committee of Carlisle, I can't legally be involved in investing in the family office. But I hired a team of people and asked them to go invest in areas that Carlisle was not doing so I would diversify more. And all the deals have to be approved by Carlisle. So I wanted to do this as, as a diversification. Also, I wanted to involve my children in, in some of the uh, things I was doing. And now they all have their own private equity firms 
which I've capitalized a bit, though they've raised money from outsiders as well. And then, you know, I can talk with them more about things than I probably did when they were younger because we're all investing in private equity now. So when you start a family office, there's roughly 17,000 family offices throughout the world controlling roughly $10 trillion. And then you've got 65 trillion coming downstream from the baby boomers, the next gen and the next 15 years. So this market, the family office market will be larger than private equity and venture capital combined. Question for you is in your opinion, and there is no right answer, how much money do you need to have a family office if you're gonna invest in the private markets? Well, the definition of family office is variable. Some people will say they have a family office when they've got $5 million under management. Yep. And some people will say they have a family office and they've got two or three or four or five or six billion dollars under management. Family office can be what you want it to be. It doesn't mean only investing. As you know, family offices can manage uh, real estate. They can manage intergenerational problems, trusts and estates. They can do public equities, private equities, real estate, a whole variety of things. In my own case, my family office tends to do uh, alternative investments because that's what I generally know and most comfortable with. And we don't really do public equities or, or things like that. But you can do all those things. Uh, the interesting thing about the phrase family office is that people seem to like it. In other words, if I tell you I'm in private equity, you know, some people might, you know, scrunch their face and say, geez, aren't those people ruining the environment or not paying their taxes and so forth? If I tell you I'm in a family office, people smile because the phrase family office is one that people like. Who cannot like the word family? Everybody likes that word. So family offices have not been controversial, really, compared to private equity. And so I, I really enjoy my uh, for efforts to have build, help build a family office. And I expect at some point I'll spend much more time at it. So in your opinion, private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early 80s. It, it was a better model. 2% covers the overhead, 20%. I only make money. If you make money, you don't have to report to a guy like me. I used to run a hedge fund every 90 days. So I, I get that. Um, in your opinion, are family offices going to disrupt private equity just like private equity disrupted the public markets in the early 80s? And the reason yeah. I'm asking the question is because they have something called patient capital. Yeah, um, it's disrupting it in a different way. Um, before uh, private equity and alternatives came along, you essentially had three things you would do with your money if you were investing it. You put it in traditional real estate, very traditional core real estate. You would put it into stocks. Or bonds. That was basically what money management was all about. Very traditional, uh, single-digit kind of return businesses. Private equity came along and opened people's eyes to double-digit rates of return and higher, uh, you know, uh, multiples on invested capital as well. Family offices are not going to change that because the what the family offices are doing are investing in very much uh, alternatives as well as public equities. But what they are doing is providing a different source of capital. Uh, than just the private equity firms had before. Private equity firms got their money largely from uh, public pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and so forth. Now family offices are not only providing money to private equity firms, but they are doing these deals themselves. And now family offices are raising third-party money to enhance what they can do. So I would not be surprised if in five or 10 years from now, there'll be some family offices that'll be as well-known as Blackstone or Carlisle or, or KKR, because they will have accumulated lots of money. Now, what's the difference between a family office in that context and a private equity firm? Well, the family will probably be a disproportionately large investor and probably be more patient capital than private equity firms. Got it. 
So how do you, you know, family offices as an industry is a very fragmented, very siloed and very inefficient industry in general. I think the statistics are 25% make it to the second gen, 10 to the third and five to the fourth. Um, what do you do? How do you network with other family offices or do you network with other family offices? Well, I have a team of people in my own family office that does that more than I do. Um, but they do speak at family office conferences, and I do from time to time do that as well. Um, but you know, remember, very often the people that I know who've built large private equity firms now have their family offices. So when I'm talking to some of the leaders of the private equity world, I'm also talking to leaders of family offices. Now, um, I, I think that uh, the family offices have been around for a, quite a while, but they've come into their own recently as more and more people have gotten wealthy and want to diversify from their core business that made them wealthy. And so I think uh, it, Europe has had family offices probably in longer than, than America. Uh, there were, of course, there was the Rockefeller family office for a long time and, and other well-known families like that. But where people have really built their family offices out in the United States has been, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, a dramatic increase in family offices compared to Europe where um, there have been family offices for quite some time, whatever they call them. And I think Asia is beginning to do family offices as well. And so as wealth has accumulated, people want to you know, make sure they have uh, more control over where it gets invested and you see more and more so-called family offices. Yeah, 68% of family offices started since 2000 and half of those started since the crash. So it is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, I want to touch now on something that's really, that's obviously super important to you um and has become more important to me and that's philanthropy um i guess first question is why is philanthropy so important to you well i came from very modest circumstances i'm not sure in some other country uh somebody with my last name and came with uh from modest roots would have been able to uh, you know acquire the kind of wealth that i've been able to acquire and so i do feel an obligation to give back to the country and also to society I also recognize as I get older that I can't be buried with the money and the pharaohs try to be buried with their wealth. There's no evidence that's a great idea. And so when you get to a certain point in life, uh, you either decide you're going to die with the money and let your executor dish it out and hopefully you'll be watching from somewhere or you decide to give it away while you're alive. And when you're alive, if you're giving it away, you have to either give it away typically to philanthropic organizations or your family. And uh, I try to have a mix of giving my children some some money now, uh, but also giving away a fair amount of money to philanthropic organizations. And I like to remind people that philanthropy is a word derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean people writing rich checks to rich to, or to, to organizations. So you can love humanity with giving your time and your energy and your ideas, not just in your money. Now, clearly, organizations like money, but really volunteering and giving your time is very valuable. In my own case, I try to be chair of, not chair, but I have become the chair of a number of boards, and I try to get involved on the boards, and I try to give my time as well as my money. Um, I ultimately hope to give away all of my money, uh, and I you know, was an original signer of the Giving Pledge, as you pointed out, and I've given away uh, you know, you know, a lot of money already. Okay. On March 13, 2014, you bought the Magna Carta for $21.3 million, and you did it because you were worried that the document would be whisked away into other people's outsiders hands outside of the US. I guess the first question is, let's assume one wants to buy the Magna Carta, who does one call? How, how does that process start? Well, it turns out there are 17 extant copies of the Magna Carta, there were different versions of them. 
1215 version that we're all familiar with from our school days never went into effect. It was abrogated within two weeks by King John. The only one that actually went into effect was one that was from 1297. Uh, King John's uh, grandson uh, executed one. And um, that's the one that I bought. Uh, of the 17 extant copies, uh, only one is in private hands. It was, it was in a private family in England's hands for about 500 years. They sold it to Ross Perot in the early 1980s. He put it up for sale at, at Sotheby's. And I happened to be at Sotheby's the day before. They told me it was likely to go to somebody from outside the United States. And I recognized the Magna Carta was an inspiration for our own Declaration of Independence. So I said, like, I, we should keep one of the 17 copies in the country. And so I did. And now it's on permanent display uh, at the National Archives. 2016, you donated $18.5 to restore the Lincoln Memorial and expand its exhibits. Why? The Lincoln Memorial is the most visited memorial in, in the United States and the most visited site in Washington, D.C. as a tourist site. Um, it's uh, a little run down a little bit. Uh, I would say it's not as well maintained as maybe it should be in some cases because there hasn't been enough money. But what I mostly wanted to do is I wanted to make it more of an educational center. So under the Lincoln Memorial, there's an enormous amount of space that is available. Uh, and therefore, we're building an underground education center. So when you go to visit the Lincoln Memorial, you just don't see this gigantic sitting Lincoln, uh, but you actually can go under the uh, memorial and you'll be able to get into education classrooms and learn much more about Lincoln than is currently the case. So since 2013, you've donated millions of dollars to organizations that repair and upgrade historic monuments, such as the Washington Monument, Monticello, et cetera. Right. Why? Well, the human brain has not yet evolved to the point where you see something on a computer slide, it's the same as seeing it in person. So if you visit the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, Monticello, and so forth, you actually visit them, you'll probably learn much more about American history than if you just see a computer slide of those things, and you push a button, you go on the next computer slide picture. So my theory is that if you can make these buildings more attractive, people will go there. If you go there, they'll learn more about American history. The theory of representative democracy is that it works if you have an informed citizenry. Sadly, our citizenry is not as informed as it used to be about civics, how our government works, and about American history. So this is my small part towards trying to help get people more educated about American history and civics, and hopefully it'll have some impact at some point. Now, you've also written three New York Times bestselling books, How to Lead, The American Experience, and The American Story. Why did you decide to write the new, your new book, How to Invest? Well, investing is a subject that I've been involved with for some 35 years now. And so I know a lot of the leading people in the investing world. I thought I could get interviews with them. And then I thought I could give my own views on investing. I don't claim to be a great investor or Warren Buffett or anything like that. But I have gone through a lot of things over 35 years. And I thought I'd try to give people my own perspectives. And maybe uh, it was designed really for the average person. Not to, it's not, You're not going to become Warren Buffett by reading this book, just like you're not going to be uh, Tiger Woods by reading a book on how to play golf. But I thought I could give the average person some ideas about what to do with their money and hopefully inspire younger people to go into the profession, because I think the profession is a really important profession. By allocating capital in the correct way, you can really help this country. For example, the venture capitalists that uh, funded Moderna, they really helped uh, create a company that created a vaccine that saved the lives of many people, including myself, probably. So I do a podcast because I love doing it. You also do a podcast. Why? 
Well, I guess I am very intellectually curious. My mother would say when I was growing up, don't ask all of our guests questions so much. Don't be a Yenta. Don't have to know everything. And so Yenta is a Yiddish word for, I guess, somebody wants to know everything. And so I guess I'm intellectually curious and I always like to learn more. And so I guess I find it fun to interview people and ask questions. And so it's been because of technology, it's easier to do than it used to be. Interestingly, the format that, that I'm talking about, the interview format, the podcast format, what you're engaged with me now is an is a relatively new format. Um, we have no interviews of George Washington. There are no interviews of Abraham Lincoln. There are no interviews of uh, Charlemagne or Cleopatra. You know, it's sad because we don't really know what they thought. Uh, I wish we could find a way to go back and, and do interviews with them. But it's interesting how people like to hear other people's views on things, particularly questions that people have themselves been asked themselves. You know, why are people doing certain things? People like to hear about other people, how they motivate themselves to do things. And I think the podcast format, the interview form, format helps. And so my books tend to be ones where I distill interviews that I've done and then summarize them a bit. Well, you've done incredible, obviously, from both a business standpoint and a philanthropic standpoint, and you've accomplished so much. One question that I want to ask you is, of everything you've done, what are you most grateful for? Well, I guess I'm grateful that my parents lived to see me achieve something. I'm their only child. My parents lived to be 85 and 86, respectively. So I'm glad that they could see I accomplished something and they did a good job, I, I guess you could say, in helping to raise me. And I'm glad my own children are now at the age where I can see what they're doing. And so that's probably, uh, you know, most people's legacies are probably, you know, their children, if they have children. Um, but I'm glad that generally people think I've been a productive citizen. I'm trying to give back to the country. And so that's all I really ask for, that people so think I, that I've done something useful with my life. Well, I think that's kind of an understatement. But so how do you raise hardworking children and not entitled? I mean, your kids, look, people of your stature, it's very easy for kids just to say, dad's rich and, you know, take yes. their foot off the gas pedal. You know, what did I, you do? The hardest thing in the world to do is probably raising children. Yeah, uh, yeah. And if you're from a wealthy family, it's even harder because you have a tendency to give too much money to your kids, make it easy for them. So I tried to be a role model by working hard, showing that while I'm away from the home a bit, I wasn't there all the time. By working hard, I was trying to build something. And by giving away money, I was trying to say to my children, you should try to do something as well to give back to society. All of my children chose to go to business school and chose to get into private equity. Uh, maybe that's because of my influence. Maybe not. I don't know. But I, I think they've all achieved something that's uh, useful. But obviously, there are many families that have produced very, very successful children who are also from wealthy backgrounds. It's, it's challenging, though. You often see, as you allude to, People who come from wealthy families, the children of those families, can basically do nothing with their life. And very often you see that, sadly. If you just, you're 25 years old now, let's just say you just graduated college, what would you do for a living? Well, today, uh, I obviously know more about the investment world than I did. And I probably would have joined it earlier and probably wouldn't have practiced law because I like the investment world. But I would like to do public service. I served for four years in a Carter at White House. But I wouldn't say that anybody thought that my service was so wonderful. We got inflation to very high levels and, and so forth. So I, I probably would like to go into public service in some way. That's what I probably would do for a while. I, I tell people, try to do some public service uh, work but in, early in your career or later in your career. It's harder to do it in the middle of your career as you're building your, your private sector career. So if you had a do-over, what would you do differently? If I had to do it all over again, uh, I probably would have... Uh, 
you know, probably would have gotten a JD MBA as my son did. Um, and, and because I didn't really have a business background as much as I wish I had, uh, I probably would have uh, done a better job in the government. Maybe I could have helped Carter get reelected. Uh, I wish I had uh, not practiced law that much because I wasn't that good at it and probably wish I had started my firm earlier. But overall, I'm reasonably happy with where I am in life. And now my greatest goal is to stay alive. As you know, when you get to a certain age, you know, people uh, tend to get sick and ill. And I'm always reading about friends of mine who are younger than me or often don't survive. So I'm trying to stay uh, healthy. You're obviously a role model to generations of, of people. Um, what advice do you have for college kids today who want to become successful, whatever that means right. to them? Well, study in college things you're interested in and not what you think is going to help you get a job. I don't really care what people major in when I'm hiring them. It's whether they do well in it and they really enjoy it. But learn how to write well. Learn how to write in, in, in the, the, the language so that you can express yourself. Learn how to talk orally. Learn how to make a speech. Uh, learn how to get along with other people. Learn how to accept uh, uh, defeat and also how to share the, the credit, but also to take the blame. Those are things I think people should really learn. You're obviously extremely patriotic. This is a long question, but try to keep it, I guess, as short as you can. What's wrong with politics in our country today? Well, the the money that is so prevalent in our system has driven people to the far left and the far right, and they don't talk to each other, and it's it's dysfunctional. I did start a program uh, to interview uh, great historians about America in front of only members of Congress. I do it once a month, and members of Congress love to come to this dinner because they can sit with people from the opposite party. They can not have the press saying, hey, why are you talking to somebody from the opposite party? And uh, it's clear that members of Congress wish they could do better than they are in working together. But it's clear that the money that they need to raise, they feel they need to raise is so significant that they have to appeal to the far left or the far right to raise the money. So it's going to be a long time as long as we have money in politics before both sides are getting along with each other. So Michael Bloomberg decided to take matters into his own hands and decided to run for president, even though that's not really what he wanted to do. Is that something you would ever contemplate? Um, no, I don't think I have the uh, personality, the charm, the good looks, but also I'm too young. I'm only 73. Uh, you got to be older. Uh, in this day and age, uh, 73 is a teenager. So I have to wait and mature a little bit more before I consider running for anything. But no, I'm not honestly going to run for anything. I I think I recognize my my talents and my skills and probably being a candidate is not one of them. So when people are looking at role models, they look at people like you who've achieved so much. Is it more important for you to be happy or to be significant? Well, happiness is the most elusive thing in life. As I've said many times, it's very hard to be happy. And we don't really know what makes people happy. Um, I am happy. I'm reasonably happy with where I am. Uh, I think personal happiness is probably more important than anything else because you don't want to go through life not being happy. But part of my happiness comes from the fact that people think I've done something useful with my life and that gives me some happiness. And I, as I said earlier, my parents saw me um, achieve some of the things I did and that made me great, very, very happy. I know Ray Dalio is into meditation. What do you do to relax? Podcasts. I interview people and I do be interviewed. That's my relaxation. I'm I'm not into meditation. I I'm the op whatever the opposite of meditation <laughs> is. I don't know whatever that is. That's what I probably what I do. I I'm not really good at meditating. But uh, I what I'd like to do to relax is I like to read. I like to meet with smart people, ask them questions, and basically uh, learn. 
Okay, and just a couple more questions because I could do this for hours. Um, how often do you read? You know, I know Bill Gates and Warren Buffett talk about that they read six hours a day, et cetera. How often do you read? Well, I have uh, a trick. I interview a lot of authors, and so therefore I feel it's an obligation to read their books. So I, I do read probably about an hour and a half to two hours a day of books, and then journals and newspapers another hour and a half or so. Um, I am still old-fashioned. I like to go buy the newspapers and physically buy them and, and carry them around and as opposed to reading online. And same with books. I don't read Kindles. I like to read the books themselves. So I'd say between everything I do, I'm probably reading three to four hours a day and learning. Um, you know, I'm always trying to learn something and uh, you know, I enjoy it. It's a pleasureful thing for me. Over the net, you're 70, I believe 73. 73. Um, over the next 20 years, what's your goal? What do you want to accomplish? Well, staying alive for 20 years would be a great goal. But I guess what I'd like to do is um, give away more money to causes that I care about. Um, I build up my family office to the point where it doesn't need me to be there. Um, not that it needs it now, but I want to make sure that if I die and when I die, the family office can continue. Uh, make sure my children are safely launched into their own careers and happy as well. And then ultimately have people think that I've given back to the country uh, some things that I um, you know, think the country could use. And ultimately, that's that's really what I'm about. And then last, I also read that you're doing a PBS documentary. It's an eight-part yes. documentary. Can can you touch on that and yes. why you why you decided to do it? In, 19, in 2022, I spent much of 2022 running around the country uh, on a series I kind of came up with uh, the idea for, along with some production people. And it was to uh, do eight one-hour sh shows on American symbols, iconic symbols. So the Golden Gate Bridge, the American Bald Eagle, uh, the the Statue of Liberty, Fenway Park, the American Cowboy, and basically educate people about why these became symbols, how they came about, how we misunderstood some of them. And so I did that for a while, interviewed a lot of people, and it'll be on PBS in uh, April and May, I believe. Last question I have for you is, uh, my first boss is Michael Milken. And Michael Milken, as you know, has developed prostate cancer and did more for the cure of prostate cancer than anybody. And then you look at what Bill Gates did with vaccines. He probably did more than the U.S. government. Um, kind of one of my North Stars, and I want to hear how you think about this. You can't run a family office or a philanthropy. You can't run it exactly like a business, but you can run it more business-like. I would argue that Milken wouldn't have been as far along with finding a cure for prostate cancer if he just donated $100 million to American Cancer Society. He built it like a VC firm. Same with Gates. Question for you is, how do you combine the business skills, which are innate, that you have, but to solve these real-world problems? Well, that's not easy to do. Mike Milken has been great in what he did in prostate cancer, bringing all the foundations together and getting people to focus on one foundation. And, and actually helping with the medical research as well. Um, I try to do the best I can in, in giving people my views on things and try to push people along a little bit, but I don't probably have the skills that Mike Milken does to get people to do things as well as he does. But uh, he's a great role model in, in the sense of what he's done in philanthropy and a very, very smart person for sure. Well, it's been terrific uh, talking to you. Again, I could talk to you for hours. Um, I look forward to seeing you in Chicago okay. in about a month. And right. again, thank you very much My pleasure. For, for doing Thanks this. Thanks a lot. Bye. Appreciate Take, it. Take Bye. care. Thanks for tuning into Family Office World for today's show. Please make sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. I'll see you on the next episode.
Family offices have approximately 10 trillion in assets, with another 65 trillion being transferred from baby boomers to the next generation in the next 15 years. This is the largest transfer of wealth in history. Family offices will soon control more money than the entire private equity and venture capital industries combined. The family office world is going to disrupt the way in which funds are raised. The world is changing so rapidly, so quickly. If you look at my generation versus my children's, there's been a bigger change, in my opinion, than any generation, including the Industrial Revolution. We are only in the second inning in the evolution of family offices. Every high-end service provider is trying to break into the lucrative family office market, mostly with limited success. Let Ron Diamond, one of the industry's most sought-after advisors, show you how he and his team have been able to navigate the family office landscape while developing meaningful relationships. I was giving a lecture, a keynote at Stanford about two years ago, and I had five billion-dollar families on the stage. And I asked each one of them, I said, what's a family office and why did you create it? And I had five completely different answers. And nobody was wrong and nobody was right. But that's kind of where this industry is. Only 25% of family offices make it to the second generation. 10 make it to the third, and five make it to the fourth. So the model doesn't work. Here's what we need to do. We need to come together as a community and share best practices. Representing over 100 family offices, from 250 million to 30 billion, Diamond Wealth has curated a community of family offices to collaborate and share best practices. We are now ready to share that thought leadership with service providers everywhere. We are at a tipping point, and there is no better guide into the world of family offices than Diamond Wealth.